0: This is the Search Dog Podcast brought to you by the National Search Dog Alliance, the voice of canine search and rescue. I'm Megan Ortega. Welcome to the 2021 Podcast Conference brought to you by the National Search Dog Alliance. A new episode will appear each Saturday and Sunday through November with interviews from National Search Dog Alliance board, members, subject matter experts, and community. We are covering the past, present, and future of Canine Search and Rescue. We are talking about what NSDA is doing and what you can look forward to seeing from NSDA in the future. Listen for search dog stories and more. Find more information about NSDA on our website, n-sda.org. And I encourage you to sign up for our once monthly newsletter while you're there. You can also find NSDA on Instagram and Facebook, search for National Search Dog Alliance. Our cover art is from the SAR Shop, where you can find gifts and gear for you, your dog, and your friends. Find them at sarshop.com. Enjoy! Today's episode has two segments the first with Sherry Scruggs, and the second with Heather Cutting, the guest on our last episode. Sherry Scruggs holds a bachelor's degree in animal science from the University of Florida. Sherry had an illustrious 35-year career at the University of Florida and in 1995 began training labradors for search and rescue. She has since spent the last 18 years working German short-haired pointers and now enjoys retirement in Blue Ridge, Georgia. She has served on the National Search Dog Alliance board of directors since its inception. She's the Principal Evaluator for Land HRD, Water HRD, and Gun Source Residue. Heather Cutting works her dogs in Washington State. She's been involved in Canine Search and Rescue since 1997, and she's a member of King County Search Dogs and the National Search Dog Alliance. Heather has worked hundreds of searches in King County and Washington State. She specializes in helping new teams get off the ground, and has helped dozens of teams make their way to certification. She's taught classes in air scent, Wilderness Search, Cadaver, and Water, as well as help, helping Andy Redman and Marsha Koenig teach a number of classes and seminars. Enjoy today's episode. Hi, Sherry. Oh thank you so much for being on the National Search Dog Podcast. You're welcome. And thank you for being on the board all these many years. Um, so <laughs> today we want to cover with you some... Uh, frequently asked questions that people who are either just starting in search and rescue or uh, just getting into using a canine uh, have when they're when they're just starting out maybe before they've even uh, gotten to the point of picking out a canine partner. So thank you for joining us and um, I think the first question that we can start with is can I use the dog that I already have to train to be a search dog?
1: Well, Megan, a lot of people start out that way um, and it's great if you can find someone that knows about SAR dogs and can have them evaluate your dog. Of course, some of the breeds are better SAR candidates just by virtue of their breed attributes, but it certainly doesn't mean that many different types of purebred or mixed-bred dogs can't do the work. I think it also depends on how you have raised that dog. I have personally seen dogs that have a ton of obedience training not want to leave the handler to work independently, and they're constantly looking at the handler for direction. Mm -hmm. I feel dogs need to go out and search independently of their handler. The reverse of that is a dog that has been allowed to develop bad habits. That can be very hard to break, and and it eats up a lot of the training time for the handler and for the team as a whole. Now, of course, the spooky dog that has very little nerve strength is not a dog that I would even waste my personal time on. Um, and, you know, not all dogs have to be or nor ever will be reliable search dogs, no matter how long you train them. It's just the way it is.
0: Right. So, um, you know, it's it's possible that a dog may end up being able to be a search dog, but they really need to be evaluated. And when you're looking at those you know, whether it be breed attributes or the way that this dog has been raised, what are the, what are the positive attributes that you're looking for? Um,
1: well, I'm looking for a dog that has a strong constitution, you know, it's a confident dog, but it's not so confident that it just basically ignores everything you tell it. Um, you know, it needs to listen to the human, but it needs to be confident and go out there and be able to deal with the world. Um, Certainly, I personally like a dog that is uh, friendly. They don't have to love everybody, but they should accept people in there, you know, that are around them and not be snarling at them and that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. they should be able to be around other dogs. They They don't have to be buddies with the dogs. I personally don't let my dogs play with other people's dogs, but they need to be able to tolerate that dog in their space.
0: Right. So, once somebody has a dog... Um, A common question is, what commands should I use with my search dog?
1: Well, you know, it depends on, it depends a lot probably on what you like too. But uh, when I get a new puppy, um, I like to write down all the possible disciplines that I might do with that dog, whether I'm going to be able to accomplish them all or not. So I think before you even start with that dog, decide what commands are going to be what the commands are gonna be, and really think about how those commands are gonna interact with multiple disciplines if you choose to do that. Um, so I think you should pick commands that are comfortable for you to use and ones you will readily remember. Uh, I know for myself, for 26 years, I've used the same command for my HRD dogs, which is find Fred. A Lot of people used to say that, nobody does anymore. I don't hear anybody but me use it, but I stick with it because I can remember it.
0: Mm-hmm. When it works for you. That's right. <laughs> do you do the same thing with other disciplines where you reuse the same command for over and for, over?
1: For me, yes. For all my dogs, I have worked. I just started with the ones I started with 26 years ago, and I just carried it all the way through.
0: Sure. Yeah. So when you have a new dog... Um, can two people plan on working the dog? So if you, whether that's two people in the household or two people on the team?
1: Uh, Well, I have seen dogs worked by multiple handlers, um, but of course, both of those handlers need to certify with that dog independently. Um, A dog team consists of one handler and one dog. So uh, just because one person certifies with that dog, it doesn't automatically mean that dog is now certified to be used by the other handler. You Mm -hmm. need to both uh, test with that dog. Right. And I think it's important that, uh, both people use the same commands and they train the dog the same way. Um, you can't confuse the dog by asking the dog to do different things depending on who's working it. Right. The dog shouldn't have to figure that out. Um, and I think the foundation work needs to be solid at every stage of the training of that dog. Of course, that would be even if one person was handling the dog. And the dog must be an independent worker, I think. Um, if it's really attached to one person and not the other, I think that can, can just cause problems. Uh, a long time ago, when we first started, we used to play around with our area dogs and HRD dogs. And um, we would leave the uh, the handler at base camp and another teammate would take our dog in the field and work them and most of the dogs couldn't care less who worked them and they performed as they were trained to the only dogs that uh, didn't do well were the ones that were more handler focused and really didn't want to be out there working without their mom Uh, so those dogs didn't do as well Um, having said all this uh, it may be very possible that trailing dogs wouldn't do well with two handlers because so much of that information is going back and forth along that leash, and I'm sure no two people would uh, be the same. Uh, but having said that, trailing is not a discipline I know well, so I can't speak about this with a lot of confidence for that particular discipline.
0: Sure. That's fair. Um So what disciplines do you work your dog or dogs in throughout the years? And and how do new people decide which discipline to pick for themselves?
1: Um, Yeah, a lot of people ask this question. Um, Right presently, uh, the two dogs I have, I work in land and water, um, human remains detection. Uh, When I started out 26 years ago, um, we did multiple disciplines with our dogs. We each had one and um, I worked my dog in area, disaster, land and water human remains detection. Um, And then as time went on, we were getting uh, call-outs. We weren't getting any call-outs for our live find dogs, so I quit doing uh, live find dogs. Um, So I think before a person spends a lot of time training a discipline that you will not use, I would educate myself on how the dogs in your area are being used. And um, it's important to note, uh, dogs don't always enjoy the discipline you may want to train them for. Mm -hmm. They may be better suited for another discipline and you have to be willing to, to change. Um, You know, the dog's got to be happy at work. So they don't, they don't all do it all.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, We've heard from some other people too, about um, evaluating a dog and maybe it's, better suited to even a completely different type of work, whether it be conservation or um, something else where the dog can be happier and be more successful. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that just really takes a a qualified evaluator. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah, you need to have people that have kind of been doing this. I think that that they can look at a dog and say, Hey, that dog's not going to work out in this, you know, that dog's not working happy. Um, that dog is stressed. You know, sometimes handlers don't see it because they don't want to see it. Um, so you need to, other folks need to chime in and say, you know, that dog's really not having a good time doing this. Um, so maybe we want to think about something else for this dog. We can go a different venue or something. You know, you may have a dog that, works really well while it's on lead and does detail work really nicely. But when you cut that dog loose, it just doesn't, it won't get out from underneath the handler and it won't get out there and work independently. Sure. Um, And those are important qualities for a dog that's doing area search.
0: Right. So, um, it sounds like you agree that a dog can work in multiple disciplines.
1: I have, I, Well, I used to train my dog multiple disciplines because I only had one dog. Um, Now, I tend to just stay with one discipline for me, for my particular dogs. But I've certainly seen dogs, and they're still out there, that are doing multiple disciplines. Um, And the the dogs do well. Uh, The big thing is if... um, You know, nobody gets a gold star for how many disciplines their dog works in. You Mm -hmm. know, some people like to brag, oh, my dog does three and four different things and that. But you find out that dog doesn't do any of them well. Right. So I think that the handlers need to be um, really honest with themselves and say, you know, can my dog do these multiple disciplines or am I just kind of, you know, I don't have enough training time to, to do multiple things with this dog. I just don't have the time to put in. So let me stick to one thing. Right. So it just depends on the handler and the dog and what the team's needs are and things like that, I think.
0: Yeah. So if somebody wants to train their dog in multiple disciplines, um, should they finish one before starting the other?
1: Well, it's my belief they should, um. When, we, when I first started out 26 years ago, we might do HRD in the morning and then do live find in the afternoon with the same dog. All the dogs ended up doing it. And we're pretty darn good dogs, but it's not the way I would go now. I think, I think it's best just because it took us a long time to get them um, through all of that stuff. I think if we had stuck with one discipline, finished it, and then gone to the next one, we probably would have gotten those dogs able to go in the field much faster. And that's just my belief. Um, So I think you should finish one before the other. Um, But if, in my opinion, if you're going to do live find and HRD work with that same dog, I personally would do the live find first. And the reason I'm saying this is because with a live find dog, we're asking these dogs to move out away from us and work independently in the field. And I believe it's easier to teach that dog to range in closer when I switch over for the HRD work than it is to take that dog I started in HRD and I was having that dog working closer to me. And now I'm going to ask this dog to range out and do area Mm -hmm. for me. So I think I would do, I personally would do the live first and then go with the HR work after. Sure. But now, um, having said that, If I intend to work my dog in live um, and HRD, then I'm certainly not opposed that while that dog is training for the live find, that they be introduced to the smell of human remains. And you could simply do this by just letting the dog go out with you while you pick up your training aids and stuff like that and just see if the dog is even interested in that novel odor that's out there, you know? And it just kind of gets them a little familiar with it. They're not on command or anything like that. They're just kind of going out there with you. Um, And uh, if if I'm training a, a dog in HRD, me personally, I do land and water with that dog And so while I have that dog in the imprinting stage, um, I'll let that dog go out with me to pick up the training aids again out in the woods or wherever. And if they put their nose on it, we just have a big party. And when I do the boat work, um, I just let the puppy or the young dog or the new dog ride with me on the boat while I'm picking up the training aids. And then they have the opportunity to just... Kind of lean over and smell the container that has the material in it. Again, they're not on a command, but they're just familiarizing themselves with the odor. Right.
0: And familiarizing themselves with the odor in this uh, already really fun environment. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. So if you want to train a dog to search for human remains, um, can you also play around with scent work with, say, essential oils?
1: Uh, for me, I personally wouldn't do that. Um, if you were, if you um, work missing person cases or possible homicide cases, then you'll be working in buildings trying to gather evidence. And you know, it's my thought: why muddy the waters by imprinting your dog on the oils? You know, that could come back to to bite you in the courtroom system down the road. I believe it could.
0: Right. Um, Just introducing any level of doubt. Yeah, I I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I mean. That's a good point. How do I decide what certification to get and what about testing expectations? So how do new handlers know what to expect when they, uh, you know, both decide which certification and how they test for that?
1: Well, hopefully new handlers are going to be able to attach themselves to a search dog group that's already in existence, hopefully, and of course those um, teams are going to have their certification requirements, so they're going to have to meet those requirements. Um, But it's also my belief um, that dogs should be certified through an organization that tests handlers and dogs in real world situations. And I think these certifying bodies should have national recognition and maintain a good reputation for putting on challenging tests. Um, And I believe if you if you're about ready to test your dog and you're very worried about being able to even pass this test, then you're probably not ready to test. And you can certainly have a great dog and a handler that is subpar you know maybe their navigation skills are poor or they don't come up with good search strategy or whatever but on the same hand you can have a great handler and the dog is subpar you know it critters a lot it gets distracted all these things go on and so I think before you test you need to you need to fix whatever needs to be fixed whether it be the handler and the dog or both and um Just know that everybody fails tests, and it makes most teams stronger, but there is an emotional price to pay for failing. Mm -hmm. Um, It it hurts everybody. So I, I suggest to people that they read the standard that they're wanting to test to, and they have one of their teammates set them up a mock test and just see where they are in their preparedness for that test. And certainly myself as an evaluator for NSDA, um, I have folks come to me and I set up mock tests for them. And uh, then we just spend the rest of the day training, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Yeah. And then you you have the opportunity to give people feedback about what to fix before they actually go into their test.
1: Mm -hmm. That's correct. Well, they find out pretty quick when they get a mock test, because I set it up just like a real test. And I don't give them any hints or anything like that. So it it becomes uh, clear very quickly uh, what they need to go home and work on.
0: Sure. What's the hardest thing about training a search and rescue canine?
1: Well, probably when I started, it was money. But Uh, aside from that, because we we all know it's a very expensive undertaking. It is. Uh, Aside from that, I think probably it was... And when I first started, I had a very hard dog that I started with and I wasn't any good at it and I had never trained before. So I found this out really quickly. And I think it's um that learning to train a dog, it's not a straight line that progresses upwards. Tough. There are a lot of hills and valleys in this training. Mm-hmm. And everything is great when the dog is on top of that hill. But when that training hits into a valley, It can be emotionally exhausting for the handler and the dog, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And hopefully you're on a team that is supportive and helps you through this difficult time in your dog's training. But as you go through the years of training multiple dogs, you'll learn that each valley brings you the opportunity to learn more and more about how to train through problems. And it really ends up being a great process um, if you look at the good side of it. Don't always look at the negative side of it. You know, when I was um, little or a lot younger, I probably never was little, but I was younger. (laughs) I used to to ride a lot of horses and um, I was thrown a lot and I jumped off a lot and it sure did hurt, but I became a better rider for it. And when I hear someone who brags about never being thrown by a horse, to me is a person that only rode the dead, broke horses. Mm -hmm. Those weren't the ones I was riding, but... It doesn't mean that that person necessarily was a good rider just because they'd never been thrown. And I think people should relish in the fact that if you're that trainer that has learned to enjoy the hills, but has also learned to work through the valleys, you're going to be a better trainer for that, working through those issues. So I look at when I have to work through problems with my dogs and I've never seen a perfect dog, but when I have to work through problems, it just makes me better. I do better the next time. I don't make the same mistake with the next dog, but there'll be something else that, that my next dog will have to work through.
0: Right. Each dog will bring you a new set of uh, challenges.
1: Yeah, and, and I help people. They come to me for me to help them through problems, so it's it's great for me because every dog that I, that I help, it's just something else that I've kind of got in my tool belt for the next one I see that has issues.
0: Right. Well, that... Is awesome. It's been great to talk to you, Sherry. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? No, I think I'm good. Okay. Well, have a good one. Thanks again. We'll All talk right. soon. You think, thank you, too. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye-bye. So if I was a new canine handler, how do I find a search and rescue canine team near me?
2: Well, you can certainly contact the um, agency that's responsible for search and rescue in your uh, local jurisdiction. Uh, here in Washington State, that's the sheriff's office. I know in other parts of the country, um, like on the East Coast, it's actually the fire department that has responsibility for search and rescue. So once you've determined um, in the area that you're in where that jurisdiction lies, uh, reach out to those um, those agencies that would be potentially calling out uh, for search groups and see what search groups they use. That's a great place to start. Uh, If your goal is to actually help in a certain community, you need to be with the people who are being called out uh, when there is a missing person.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, So what equipment should I get?
2: Well, in general, um, obviously, this is the this is true of any search and rescue um, member. You need the ten essentials. So, you will, and then each individual team is going to have different um, different requirements. They may be able to provide you a radio um, or a GPS. Sometimes you need to have those yourself. So, you can usually wait to purchase some of those really big equipment things until. You've kind of connected with the team. I would say the one piece of, imp- of equipment that I think is really useful for people to get fairly early is a radio harness that they're comfortable with so that they're holding on to that equipment that maybe that is being loaned to them <laughs> while they're in training so they don't lose it in the woods. Uh, that's always a great, not a great way to be asked back to a training.
0: That's so. a good point. What commands would I use with my search dog?
2: Yeah, so it really doesn't matter what commands you use. And that equipment question may have been a little bit more related to the dog angle. (laughs) Um, And I didn't really go down that road. But each discipline has usually you want something where you're classically conditioning the dog to help them understand that this is the job they're doing now so in like a trailing dog most trailing dogs wear some kind of harness that's a comfortable harness that um, the dog can lean into without ending up with shoulder injuries so typically a y harness so that helps define for the dog what they're doing so the reality is you can tell them to go jump in a lake as your command, and as long as you've said it consistently every single time you've dressed them in that particular piece of equipment, that they really don't care what words you use. Um, it, it has more to do with uh, body language, your consistent starting routine, um, the way they've been gotten out of the truck, because that happens the same way every time, the pants you were wearing, When you left the house, that's going to be part of a clue to them fairly early on. My dogs, when I get dressed in the morning, that's the first thing they do is they smell my pants. And they know that if I'm wearing my jeans, they just go and lay down and they're pretty bummed. But if I wear my outdoor pants, they're much more likely to be standing by the door and looking at me like, oh, we're going to do something today. Yes
0: what shoes you wear i've found (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a big one so could more than one person handle the dog so for instance um in your family um you have more than uh one search dog handler in your home Uh, do Mm do you share dogs yeah, yeah, so this is this
2: is a great question. It's actually kind of um, commonly debated uh, in a lot of the circles I've been in. So in my home, um, each of us is a primary handler for a dog. Uh, we typically take the dog from the very early stages all the way through certification. And once we've done that, then we will cross-train with a different handler. So... And and part of that, too, is making sure that that other handler does things the way the first handler does it. So our dogs in our house, because they know both of us, they're pretty comfortable with that. Um, And, you know, we can share the routine uh, between each other and do it consistently. If you're talking about having multiple handlers on a team, obviously you'd want to be super consistent with that. And it's a pretty common practice um, for disaster and avalanche dogs to share handlers um, in different units and places. Um, So it certainly can be done. The dog, most dogs, um, well, I shouldn't say that. We've had a number of dogs that would have worked for anyone. And we would test it out periodically. As long as that person had that toy, that that dog cared about, anyone could work work that dog. right? Um, and we've seen that to be true also. A lot of our trailing handlers will uh, switch out. Like if someone has an injury, um, you know, the handler can be there to get it started and then hand the leash off to someone else um, who is familiar with that dog and can read it. So, yes, absolutely multiple people can work the same dog. But what needs to be... Um, put into a solid foundation is consistency with the dog handlers, that they're not doing something different on that dog on a regular basis, Um, and that each, each team needs to basically be certified independently if they're going to be a resource,
0: if that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, And just to clarify that statement, um, you're saying like each different handler that's working that dog will need to be certified separately. With that dog. With that dog. Or with each dog that they're handling, truly. Right, right. Even if
2: that dog is also being handled by someone else. Right. Like, for example, um, my husband's current search and rescue dog, when my dog had passed and I was working a puppy, I took his dog and went and passed a land HRD test with it so that I could um, uh, respond on missions right. when he was unavailable. Sure. So,
0: so as um, as somebody is getting into search and rescue at the very beginning, can they send their dog out for training and pay somebody else to train the dog?
2: Well, they certainly can. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit more commonly done in law enforcement um, to, to have a dog trained separately and then be connected with the dog. Uh, you could certainly purchase a dog that may already have some foundational skills um, and then build on it. But the reality is that you have to develop an individual relationship with that dog. And the two of you need to trust each other And you need to know that that dog is going to be telling you the truth, (laughs) and it needs to know that you're going to follow through with what you, what reward it's expecting, um, and and follow through on those promises that have been made to it. So you you can certainly send a dog out, um, but it's still going to take just as long to um, as a handler to learn. Because the reality is, is the dog learning. Search and rescue is the easy part. It's the person um, to understand how to work with the dog and to have the knowledge to be able to guide that dog through um, all the steps of actually working in the field. um, That takes a long time. Mm
0: -hmm. These are wise words. (laughs) Um, Can my six-year-old dog become a search dog? and uh what what age do you think is the ideal age range to start a dog for search and rescue
2: well i think the reality is any dog can eventually use its nose to find things um the question is whether or not you want to put the time into that particular dog and how long its working life will be once you're certified um It can take anywhere between 18 to two, sometimes three years to go from the early puppy stages in a volunteer search and rescue where we can't do this 24 hours a day (laughs) the way you would if you were a law enforcement uh, dog handler. Um, And by the time that six-year-old dog is certified, it could be nine years old and we need to be realistic that our dogs aren't gonna be able to potentially work in the field past 11, 12, I, I did have one dog that worked until she was almost 13 and a half, but it was mostly on water work and she fell asleep in the boat and I knew it was time um, <laughs> okay. to stop. Uh, so there, there are aspects that they can do as they get older. So in my unit the choices that we have made is we don't look at any dog that's over two Um, and that's because we know that dog is potentially going to be four maybe five by the time it's actually certified and then we want to at least get four or five years of the dog working on searches before we have to start working the next dog so other units have different feelings about that. If you're in an area that doesn't get a ton of missions anyway, um, it may not be as a concern. Um, here in our unit, we, um, it's been slow lately, but you know we get two to three, sometimes six, seven missions a month, and we need to get people from um, that beginning stage up through certification as fast as we can, and we need them to, to stay and work with us after that happens, so.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So, how did you learn scent theory, and how can a new handler learn scent theory?
2: Yeah, I and mean, there's a lot of classes out there you could certainly take. Um, there's books. Um, the, you know, there's the Sarah Tuck book is always a great foundation. I think a lot of the theory behind that's been debunked a little bit now, but really the foundational stuff about understanding how scent moves through the environment can be read about and seen online as much as you can, but you need to get out in the field and watch dogs interact with scent. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've walked along with a brand new handler and um, have said to them, did you see that? And they, they don't see it yes. um, because there's that head turn, there's that catching of the wind, there's the way the dog tail carriage all of a sudden changes when it hits the scent and the way they move. So you almost need someone with you to be able to help define for you what it is you're looking for. Okay. Um, and a, an experienced handler is gonna be able to be doing that constantly and and then on top of that to learn that scent theory that means you have to be able to be walking a straight line or have your compass and your map out and uh not stepping um in potholes and not and climbing over things all simultaneously while you're watching your dog right because you can't see those things happening unless you're keeping an eye on that dog
0: right um anecdotally uh when I was working with the Spokane team, uh, Robin and Thad oh, yeah. had us put on, uh, they put on an exercise for us, new handlers, um, where they put us in a gymnasium with a fan, mm. and they did mm. source, and they had all of us standing back and writing down, um, they had us go through uh, individually individual parts of the dog. And th- so they said, on this round, we're going to bring this dog in. We want all of you to make notes on what the tail is doing. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and we want you to only watch the tail. And then we want you to only watch the ears. And we mm-hmm, want you to only mm-hmm. watch the nose. And, um, mm-hmm. it, and we went through the different parts of the dog. And, mm-hmm. and after each dog worked it, we talked about that, you know, the way that that dog looked. And, uh, yeah their posture and things like that and i can't even tell you how helpful that has been throughout the years to have had that kind of foundation
2: yeah i think that's steve white's um philosophy yeah like he has like a whole checklist um but yeah what a great great exercise you're giving me ideas we we will typically do like try to get them into big fields Uh um and yeah. mostly it's people watching their own dogs, but I love that idea of watching multiple dogs do right. the same exercise and looking at different parts each time. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember, um, I think they even had like navigators, um, help, you know, helping with this exercise and, and watching the dogs during this exercise to help the rest of the team understand and have a, a bigger understanding. It's very mm-hmm. Cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great idea. Yeah. Of course, you have to do that in Spokane.
0: What was that? Work
2: in a g- You have to do that in Spokane periodically, you know, work in a gym because it's so cold out. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think that was probably January, <laughs> so I was glad to be indoors. Um, when and what records should a new handler keep for a young dog that's just started training?
2: So I would say exactly the same thing you're going to keep with an older dog. Um I like to start out. I, lots of people use the um, the like check-offs where you can sort of NSDA has some. You can find some other ones online. Some people do it on like a on a phone app where you can just kind of check different things so you don't have to handwrite it. I've uh, just gone with handwritten notes forever, and it's worked okay for us. Um, So, really, you know, we worked on obedience today, date, time. I'd probably start with the the day the dog was born um, and then what you've been doing each time, especially as you start getting into the search work. It doesn't have to be really an extravagant note, it could just be, you know, two runaways with the date, location, little note maybe about the temperature, things like that. And it really becomes valuable the longer um, you work dogs to be able to go back and see how long you stayed at one stage or another, or even sharing some of that information with another new handler when they're trying to figure out how long they should be on one stage or another. Mm-hmm. So just I, I just like to, to take a blank book and make it that particular dog's book and uh, mark it in the date and time and what we did.
0: Can a dog work in multiple disciplines?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Moving on. Done. Moving on. Um, we used to say, uh, "Jack of all trade, master of none." So, and I, I definitely think that is is still true in in my unit. Um, you first um, become certified in a what we call a primary discipline. And for us, that's either air center trailing, um, and that's for live people. Um, and we ask people to get all the way through certification, especially when it's their very first dog, before they start adding on an additional discipline. So the last thing I ever want to see is a brand-new handler especially a brand new handler, doing multiple disciplines at the same time, especially at the beginning stages, because not only are you not um, solidifying for yourself um, what the dog looks like doing this discipline, you're confusing things for the dog. So we have found that it's most effective to get all the way through um, certification and then start um, a new discipline. And
0: as a new handler, how do people decide what certification to get and um, how how to know about what the testing expectations are going to be?
2: Yeah, so really what certification you need to get is what does law enforcement need for you to have to be called out and be a resource in your community. Um, it... National standards are great. Um, I'm, a, I'm an NSDA evaluator, so obviously I think that those are great things, and um, I'm glad those are available. Uh, it's not always what's needed in all communities. Um, and, uh-oh, it really is dinner time now. Um, so, really you, you, you need to see what's needed in your community. What does your unit want? Um, if you're not associated with a unit, getting a national, um, national standard certification is a great way to go. Um, I think one of the things you really want to consider is what you have access to as far as recertification. Um, like here in the Northwest, in Washington, we have a number of NSDA evaluators that are in the state, um, so there is that possibility to get recertified. There's opportunities that can come up. You can reach out individually to an evaluator to see if you can set something up. If you're looking at trying to do like WADA, um, which is international police dog working something something, um, there's not a lot of evaluators in this area, right? So. You've got to, unless you um, have a lot of money and you're able to pay to travel to um, some other part of the country where those particular certifications are more common, um, you really should concentrate on one where you can get access to. That's my two cents. Now, as far as evaluation expectations, uh, you know, the reality. An evaluation should be just like a um, now will you manage to get anything
0: more than that? Probably not. Um, but if you approach it as this is just
2: another training, I know what I'm doing, um, then you'll you know, you'll be fine. Uh, Feel free to to reach out to whoever your evaluator is going to be beforehand to talk through expectations, to understand what's going to happen, what are they going to tell you. Um, Read through the standard. Uh, Look at the paperwork. You should have that opportunity before you test, whether it's with an internal test with a team or a national test. Read it. Know what it says. It's all right there. Um, have a practice with somebody um, to simulate it before you actually take the certification and and, uh, try to put you on the hot seat and see how it goes.
0: Those are very good suggestions. Thank you. And thank you for all your time. Um, That is all the questions I have for you. I can't thank you enough, Heather. Um, I really appreciate you spending time with us today.
2: Anytime. Have a great day.
0: You too. This podcast is brought to you by the National Search Dog Alliance, the voice of canine search and rescue. See more about the important work we do at n-sba.org. Special thanks to our guests today for taking time to share their experience and stories with us. And special thanks to our II Education Program Manager, Annalisa Burns, for scheduling and liaising for the podcast conference. If you would like to be a guest or suggest somebody else or submit questions for future guests, get in touch with us at podcastdiv at n-sda.org. Thank you for listening to the Search Dog Podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to help others find our work.